0: Benny Hinn says he's a minister of the gospel, but according to his nephew, Hinn's ministry is like a money-making mafia, and when you leave, you actually face death threats. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce. and today I'm publishing part two of a fascinating interview with Costy Hinn, nephew of prosperity preacher Benny Hinn. In Part 1, Costi talked about the lavish lifestyle he lived as part of Hinn's dynasty, but he also shared how God began to reveal to him the hypocrisy of Hinn's ministry. Well, in today's podcast, Kosti tells his story of coming to real faith in Jesus Christ and what he went through when he finally left Hinn's ministry. Not only was there rebuke from family members and anger, Kosti received actual death threats. But before I jump into that interview, I want to just take a minute to thank my sponsors, Judson University and Marcord of Barrington. If you're looking for a Christian university known for its biblical values, leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid, I highly recommend Judson University. Judson is a caring environment with a small student to teacher ratio, Plus, their great facilities give lots of opportunities to conduct research, fulfill internships, and explore your career path. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, I want to let you know that Marquardt of Barrington is now offering employee pricing on almost all of their 2020 models. You can visit them in person near the intersection of Barrington and Dundee Roads in Barrington, Illinois, or you can shop their entire showroom online. Just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well again, here's part two of my interview with Kosti Hinn, nephew of televangelist Benny Hinn, and author of "God, Greed and the Prosperity Gospel." We pick up our conversation where I ask Kosti about his spiritual journey away from the gospel of riches and greed. Well let's talk about your spiritual journey, because you've been talking about these cracks in the dam, and uh, my understanding, you graduated from college, you got married to your wife Christine, um, and your understanding of the Christian faith. It's. I mean, God's been working on you. There's no doubt. But you come into contact with what you call just a life-changing verse for you. Describe what happened and, and and what that verse was and how it really changed your perspective.
1: Yeah, I was at a church. We were more seeker-driven, and then the pastor, who at the time was um, the the teaching pastor there, I was the youth guy, and he said, "Hey, I'm I'm just done. I am tired of putting on a show every week." it is exhausting to come up with the next thing that everyone needs to come to. I just want to, aren't, we should just be like preaching the Bible and and shouldn't, shouldn't it like God does the growing and, and we just tell people, come on, we're going to dig in the word. And and I was like, yeah, that's kind of weird, but okay. I mean, that makes sense, I guess. And his dad was a, a DTS grad. His grandfather was, he was third generation preacher and, and the first to go kind of seeker driven madness. Um, And the Lord just started dealing with him. Well, at the same time, he's dealing with my heart. And so I had questions. I had thoughts. DBU was in the rear view. There were seeds planted in my life. My wife and I had already left my family's ministry because we had started to just get tired of being forced to do certain things or to be to be preaching that, um, that you could get spiritual gifts, and you could get the gift of miracles, or the gift of healing, or the gift of tongues, if you do all the right things. We were really tired of of that kind of teaching. We didn't know what what to believe about everything, but we knew we were done, and things weren't adding up. So, the church at that time was about forty people, and we were living like rock stars still. And my mm-hmm. wife, who's very blue collar, mm-hmm. um, grew up. My again, my father in law still in the in the iron working industry. He works for a big steel company and my mother-in-law, it is still a teacher to this day. My wife worked at TGI Fridays and put herself through college and drove a Yaris. Like that's just Christine. That's just who mm-hmm. she is. I, and I'm driving a Hummer and I've never worked a day <laughs> in my life unless it was for the prosperity gospel. Um, so she's looking at this going like something's not right. And so all of that sort of longer story made shorter puts us in, in California. Well, my pastor goes, hey, you're up, you're going to preach. <clears throat> and we're going through the gospel of John. We're just trying to go through the Bible, a book of the Bible, maybe that'll help. And he says, you're up and your text is John 5, one through 17. It's the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And I'm thinking like, okay, it's healing. I'm a hin. I got this nailed. Like, I don't agree with my family on everything, but I can preach on healing. I'm a hin, And so I start studying and he throws me a commentary. And it's this burgundy commentary by some guy named John MacArthur. I'm like, whatever. You know, I don't, it doesn't even click that that's the guy my uncle said, I wish I could have a my take my Holy Spirit machine gun and blow your head off. Like it just, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard saw that clip on TBN.
0: Oh, I haven't. That's, that's that, quite a clip though.
1: It's about MacArthur. Yeah. My yeah. uncle had had it. He was, there it, it was, you know, it's like Batman and the Joker sort of in those days, they're just always going at it over this stuff. And that, I, it doesn't click. and so. But in the sense of like, you know, you we don't have to agree with MacArthur or any type of theologian on everything, but from a standpoint of just basic hermeneutics, like take the text and understand it. I look at this commentary after studying this passage, and I'm going, okay, there's something here. Like, this is weird. I'm seeing this with new eyes. This something mm. isn't right. And so I'm going through the passage. Jesus heals one man out of a multitude. One. I'm like okay, why didn't you heal everybody? I I used to teach and believe. I always believe you you heal everyone. It's always your will to heal everyone. Now, if they're not healed, they either don't have enough faith or they're not activating their faith or they're not giving or something's not right. So I see that. And I mean, I was taught a little bit. um, It was called the Oika method. It was just this lay thing that we were doing in our church. Um, Observation, interpretation, correlation, application, like just kind of make Jot down thoughts for Bible study. So make observations of the text. Mm. I had never done that. My my, mm. my, idea was, what do I think? So I was always using the Bible to preach my own message mm-hmm. versus the Bible using me to preach its message. And so here I am making observations. I'm like, that's really odd. I'll need to dig into that. And then he heals him immediately. And John records that in John 5. Immediately, the man gets up, picks up his pallet and walks. So I'm going. That's pretty interesting. So no choir, no jacket, no offering, no music, no nothing. Like you're just right away. No process. And we used to tell people all the time, just keep exercising your faith. God's going to complete that healing. It was just always when when people would still be limping, and we felt really awkward, and we knew that the camera man and the the, the editors were going to edit that for TV, but in person we would say things like, oh yeah, just keep exercising your faith or pray people, lift up your hands and pray. There's a spirit of unbelief here. You know, whatever we could do to blame the people Mm. for the, for the lack of healing we would do. But here, Jesus just goes, get up right now. Let's go. So immediately I circled that, made some observations, some questions, and I'm thinking, okay, that, that there's something there. I think I need to preach or say. And then as I'm moving through the text, eventually I get to the part where The Pharisees asked the man, who told you, you can pick up your pallet and carry it around. It's Sabbath day. You can't work. Who told you you could do that? And he says, the man who healed me. And then John records that he didn't, because he didn't know who Jesus was. And Hmm. I remember Hmm. studying this and thinking, wait, what? What do you mean he didn't know who Jesus was? How did he get healed then? If he didn't know who Jesus was, how did he have enough faith to get his healing? And so I'm kind of mind blown at that point, thinking there's something here. I open up the commentary, and the Lord really did use the the way that MacArthur is very aggressive towards kind of that, that false idea that if you just do this, you'll get healed. He goes off in the commentary, and it says, this is the cruelest lie of faith healers today. That the people they fail to heal are guilty of negative faith, unbelief, and I'm and I so I start crying, mm. and I'm going, oh no, that's me, mm. that was a that's what I did. So, right there in study, I'm bawling my eyes out. The literally the scales fall from my eyes, so to speak. I start repenting of my sin, my beliefs, uh, preaching that, believing that. Uh, serving the Lord in that way for those reasons, and so I full on—I I call it my grace awakening moment. I believe that that moment was like my conversion. I became aware of my sin. I became aware of the, the the version of the gospel I believed and propagated. I became aware of the twisted versions of of Jesus's ministry that I had adopted, and so I came to find after that Jesus did heal sometimes based on faith and based on compassion, but other times he didn't. And so the takeaway was you can't turn his healing ministry into a formula for your own empire. You Mm -hmm. can't do that. You have to do things the way the Lord did, or you have to teach what he did. And so that was a domino. And so I started to dig down into other things and try to figure out every single thing I ever believed and then look and see if it was, um, biblical or if there was evidence that would support that type of belief. And so I went through sort of a theological overhaul. And there like some things, you know, didn't necessarily need to change if I like the Lord's return. I mean that a mm-hmm. prosperity preacher believes that too. So it wasn't like I was a a, a Mormon or a, a Muslim, but I was definitely in need of some serious overhaul. And so that was about seven years ago now. Um, and that, that journey took me into seminary. And of course I got my title stripped for me. I became PIT pastor in training and I got mentored, discipled, started reading. I'd never really read a lot of books before in my life. And now it was, I was like, guys are giving me older, wiser pastors. Like even my, my mentor's uh, dad was giving me books that he had used in seminary. So I was reading voraciously. i I found out who Spurgeon was and was like, where has this guy been all my life? And yeah. so that was the journey, Julie.
0: Wow. Amazing. Did Did you feel like you were a believer before and this was just really getting to know the Lord better? Or did you feel like you were getting to know Jesus for the first time?
1: That's a great question. I personally believe that I was not a true convert up until that I'll call it a season up until that season, because even friends I have have said "Eh, an unconverted person doesn't long for the truth. So even you were being drawn, the Lord was doing work in your heart. You just couldn't quantify it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But for me personally, Hmm. I that moment was awareness. I literally vowed to the Lord out loud. I was talking in my office, bawling my eyes out. I said, I vow I will I will preach the true gospel for the rest of my life. Hmm. I repent. I'll serve you. I want to do ministry the right way. I want to be a pastor. I want to preach. I want to serve. Like it, it was a a, a full response, a full commitment mm. to the Lord. And so I believe that was definitely my conversion. And then here's another thing too: the patterns of sin. You think about like what First John points to a lot in the New Testament about not perfection, but this progression that the patterns of righteousness are going to be evident in a saved person. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, or our works become evidence, right, of an inward transformation. Mm-hmm. No one says, oh, I'm a Christian, and then they just go, you know, sleep around, or, or go just get drunk all the time, and go, yeah, God's good, who who cares, you know, that doesn't matter. A, a Christian, albeit slowly, is going to slowly be transformed, and, and habits are going to change, and desires will change. And then mm-hmm. instead of not caring about sin, you'll, you'll actually hate it. We're mm. still going to sin, but you'll, you'll mourn it and you'll confess it. And you'll not just live on cruise control. That actually started for me around that time. I stopped sinning in certain ways. My life changed. My wife was like, you're different. This mm. is we like, this is a different costume. And she'll even refer to it sometimes nowadays and say that man that I married in that first year, yeah. And, and we'll talk about different stories and different things, but my wife will actually equate it to being this, that, that guy and this guy are two different men. Mm-hmm. And, and so the old nature was gone. Then the new had come, mm-hmm. um, like second Corinthians five seventeen says. And so I believe that I was converted. I'm sure there'll, there's other people who they go through similar things and they maybe were saved prior, but that was more of their maybe a personal awakening or an awareness or just growth, you know, hmm. further sanctification. But for me, oh, it was a night and day turnaround.
0: Hmm. It's such a cool story and so amazing what the Lord has done in your life and the way he's brought you through this journey. One of the things I wonder about, though, is, and because you've, you've actually likened Benny Hen's organization to, I think once you said, I may have quoted this earlier, the royal family and the mafia, some sort of hybrid yeah. of the two, you can't just leave the mafia, as I understand <laughs> it. I mean, that's that's not okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, bad things will happen when you try to do that. And you you've said the loyalty was enforced. So, how is it that you know you can come to this realization? But then, how do you communicate that? And what happened when you did communicate that and started speaking out? I mean. Do you sometimes worry for your safety or is it that bad? Or is it just, yeah, I was kind of shunned or uh, how does that work?
1: Yeah. I mean, early on we got the, I call them the the multifaceted death threats. So like the physical stuff and the spiritual.
0: Wow. You got real death threats.
1: Yeah. I mean, early on we got the, I call them the the multifaceted death threats. So like the physical stuff and the spiritual, it's like, uh, you know, I hope your kids live through this and you're like, okay, what, Wow, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Is someone going to show up at our house or, or do you mean like they're going to be judged? And then there's other like direct physical threats. And then there's other ones that are, I just hope you don't get cancer. So there, there's a, it's, it's a myriad. It's like a a, a menu, a buffet menu of literal spiritual threats that are like, you're actually going to get a disease by doing this. And then there's the literal physical threat of like, I'm going to do this, or someone is going to do this. And then there's the passive aggressive sort of murky you know, I, I, I just hope, uh, you sleep with one eye open and you're going, okay, I, you know, God is sovereign and we'll trust the Lord. But in the end, I've always, and probably to a fault, I've always been an all or nothing guy. Um, mm. I want to have more balance in my life. I do. I want to, like, where the Bible doesn't speak, I don't want to insert my own opinion. I, I I do want to be careful. I'm learning a lot. I'm always learning a lot. I don't know everything. i'm I'll be thirty six this year. I got a lot to learn, and i and I'm enjoying learning from older, mm-hmm. wiser people. And in this at the same time, though, when the Bible speaks on something and it is what it is, I don't understand not going all in on that. That just doesn't register. When I was in the world, I was all in on the world. When it was the false gospel, and, prosperity, it was all out when it was live in sin and take the money from ministry and do whatever we wanted because we're anointed. It was all the way. It was nightclubs and wild living, all that and and doing what we want. So when I got saved, I just didn't know any other way to be except like, I don't care. I don't care what you do to me or what you say or what, like I, I'm serving Jesus and he'll either protect me and sustain me, or he'll allow me to be snuffed out. And my time was my time. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to deal with my sons and them growing up. And we've already taught them about the great missionaries of old and about the Adoniram Judson's and the Hudson Taylor. And I've already taught my, my six-year-old, you know, I'll tell him even now, Titus, if somebody holds a gun to your head or your sister's head and says, deny Christ, what are you going to do? Hmm. He says, I'll tell them, I don't care. I'll never deny Jesus. I said, Hmm. what if they shoot you? He goes, well, then it'll be bam. I'll drop to the ground in my body, but poof, I'll be in heaven right away. That's where my spirit goes. I'll say, that's right, son. I'm already teaching my kids. Like, who cares what the world says? Who cares what they can do to your body? They can't kill the soul. Matthew 10 is a big passage in our home that we've taught our kids, because in that chapter, Jesus explains to his disciples, don't fear him who can kill the body fear him who can kill the soul. And then later on in verses 34 to 39, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Families are going to be divided over me. And so again, I say this now, seven years later, the first like two weeks, I was scared to death. I was like, are we going to live?
0: Wow. But
1: seven years later, I'm going, yeah, I, in the end, the mighty King is the captain of the armies. He determines is, is Julie, going to speak on this issue or not? Is she going to make it through another day? Is this article going to come out? Is this journalism going to help? Am I going to let Mm. her live another day or or am I going to let Costi do what he does? Am I going to let this church stand? And so I, it took a while to get there and I'm, I'm still human in some ways. I still have concerns and and we try to use wisdom, but also I don't, I don't think it's living for the Lord to cower in fear when Mm. you know the truth you know the right answer, you know what to say, and you stay silent. Amen. That drives me nuts. I'm like, what are you doing? Go, go, go start a business then. Go sell something. That's fine. Go help. Uh, but don't say you're in ministry or don't say you're on the front lines serving the king because that's a different call. Like you can't be quiet. You mm-hmm. can't say, well, I'm not a pat. And so, in some ways, every Christian is called to stand for truth, but some of us have different facets of our calling. You know, not everybody can be Julie Royce. I get that. You get that. Like you, you, we can't expect everybody to, to do this, but Mm -hmm. we certainly can kind of own our own calling and realize it's going to come with some risk, but the reward is much greater. And there will come a day where we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I, I have more fear of that moment than I do of if somebody shows up and says, I'm going to kill you all for exposing the prosperity gospel. We'll go, Okay, well, looks like we're going to join the martyrs and get to see the Lord a lot sooner. I don't say that arrogantly. I <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I really mean that. <laughs> That's just the way I'm wired. I Some people might think I'm nuts, but I, it is what it is. I would have been a missionary, Julie. I would have mm-hmm. taken my family and been one of those crazy people. I even told my wife, I it wasn't a threat, but I told her like, Early on, I'm either going to be a pastor or I'm taking you over to Africa and we're going to go like right into the belly of the whale of the prosperity gospel (laughs) (laughs) with with my white family. And you know, I I tan well because my dad's from the Middle East, but we we just look like a a family of six white people. (laughs) We're going to go into Africa Mm. and take on you know the prosperity gospel preachers. I probably would have got them all killed if I did that. So um, the Lord has His purposes, but that would be my heart for not really fearing that stuff, but it being a reality. If that makes sense.
0: Amen. I'm mean, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think we've forgotten the gospel. Like it it's it just shocks me how many times in my line of work I'm encouraging people to step up and speak. And They'll say, well, if I do that, this bad thing will happen. Like that excuses them, right? It's yes. like, doesn't the gospel say if we live for Jesus, bad things will happen? The world will hate us. You know, we have to there take up go. our cross and follow him. And The one thing that I will never forget is that um, somebody, very well-known person, but I won't say who, but I remember she saying to me, this was when I had blown the whistle initially at, at Moody, and she reminded me that in Revelation, the first quality of those who are, who are left out that are cast out or rejected is cowardice and we have forgotten that i think in our culture because our life is so easy that we forget it yeah. should cost it should cost to follow jesus and you know like david said i will not give to the lord something that cost me nothing and i think mm. we have to remember that as believers it should cost and if your life isn't costing you anything for jesus you really got to wonder if you're living it for jesus amen so i mean it's got to cost um, amen many has repeatedly renounced the prosperity gospel. And I've heard people say, hey, Benny came out and said he doesn't believe in you know the hundredfold return or whatever on what you give. Or Is that for real? Has he rejected the prosperity gospel? Do you believe that?
1: Uh, no, he has not. And here's the kind of evidence or the backup for that. The minute mm. he came out with his most recent repentance, the first phone call I made was to my dad, who lives a mile from my uncle. Mm-hmm. And I texted my uncle as well, and I told my dad, just say the word. I am on a plane. I will come over there. What do you need? What does he need? Let's go. Like Game on. Is mm. he for real? Is this real? Mm. My dad said in Arabic, shui which basically means take it easy. Easy, easy. Shui shui. Um, he said, you know, he's coming over tonight. We're going to talk. And they stayed up till one in the morning talking. So I told my dad the next day, I said, what's up? Like, Give me the real deal here. I'm not asking him to come and, you know, turn into... John MacArthur and Justin Peters and show up on Todd Friel's show. I'm not, I'm not, he doesn't have to become reformed. Just give me the real honest truth. Is it for real? And my dad, I, and my mom had a really good talk. And the truth is my uncle is scared to death to meet the Lord. Mm. Uh, He is, he knows that his life has been one filled with uh, certain things that are not uh, pleasing to the Lord. Mm. Welcome to the club. We're all there. Mm. but for him to repent fully and move away from all that is going to cost him so much. And there's some things he's not willing to give up. And so what ended up happening is a lot of people called him, like big name people that there's no, I don't need to name them. It just, mm-hmm. uncle Benny's a cash cow for a whole movement. Mm-hmm. And if he starts second guessing and starts wanting to go the other way, he's not worried about, you know, John Piper saying, I told you so. He's worried about the big names in his world coming after him hmm. and telling him, what are you doing, Benny? No, 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 no. And so what happened is he walked it back a bit and he stuck with the typical, you know, it grieves the Holy Spirit to ask for a thousand dollars seed to put amounts to things. And and everything he said is true. Yeah. But like, like one guy said, you know, did, did the Holy Spirit just get fed up with this? Like this, now he's fed up. <laughs> got it. Got it. Benny. Like mm-hmm. I thought. Why wasn't he fed up in the 90s? Hmm. And so some of the challenges are the going back to that lifestyle, going back to some of that teaching. Uh, there's been some people already kind of putting out some of his messages that are coming out. And he's he sort of back to that whole world. And he did this in the 90s as well. I don't know if you remember, but he, he prophesied that all the homosexuals were going to get burned with fire Hmm. and that um Fidel Castro was going to get assassinated right th- like that year and, and kind of all these props he had a, he had a laundry list of them and we call that shotgun prophecy back in the day because you shoot out a lot of shot a lot of prophecy and hmm. something'll hit right yeah. if i just if i do 20 of them and two of them hit man, i'm a prophet and so he repented of that And then he repented of a bunch of stuff with Oli Anthony and and kind of all of that and said, I'm going to preach the, I'm just going to preach the true gospel now and then went back. And so some of it does match. I'm not saying this is like an indictment on his soul and he's going to go to hell. Hmm. I don't know what the end will be for him. I pray it's full repentance, but you look at the end of second Peter chapter two there in verse 22 and Peter use, he points back to a proverb talking about false teachers. He says like dogs, they'll return to their vomit Hmm. and And I know that's a vivid, almost disgusting picture, but so far the pattern of my uncle's repentance or have been more like remorse for getting caught or getting bad press, Mm. losing his his audience and his following and money. And he'll repent of something publicly, make a huge deal, Mm. but it won't cost him anything at all. And then he'll go back to that thing when the dust settles and nobody even notices. And then in today's world, which we know is even, softer than ever. We're seeing in today's culture, more compromised than ever. The first thing they'll say to you, if you report on that or me, is typical Pharisees, always so cynical, always Mm -hmm. so negative, never believing, never hoping. And and we might even be the first when something happens to tweet out, like, praising God for these steps, praying it comes to fruition, Mm -hmm. you know, trust in the Lord. And someone's like, oh, don't be so easy to believe everything. We're not. We're just doing the 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes bears believes endures all things. We're just mm. each time he does it, okay, maybe this is it. Let's pray, let's hope, let's believe, let's endure and then let's watch and wait. And so my uncle has looked a lot more like Judas in remorse mm. than Zacchaeus in repentance. And I don't say that callously. I say that with a broken heart and a desire for him To truly repent. And I've told my family this, I'll tell you the same thing. I would be, I want to be the first one to be at the front door. And I don't care if, if I lose friends, I don't care if I never get invited to certain conferences. I don't care what people think, because some people never want to forgive. I don't care. I, I will be the first one to be helping and walking with my uncle, if he'll allow me, if he full on repents, because that's what it's about it's not about money or or conferences or you know being a hot shot and being reformed or writing books it's about souls so if a soul repents like the, the coolest thing ever would be to have to do an addendum to the book and and slap a page on it yeah. that goes now hold on everyone <laughs> he he repented <laughs> the coolest thing would be Zondervan maybe acting to pull the book and go hey we need to adjust the language to show this is past and maybe a case study of a prosperity preacher who want who repented my uncle like I, My name, me, whoever, let me become irrelevant, because mm. he can talk about it then. I don't care about all that. I want it to be legit. And so, yeah, that's my heart. Right now, mm. it's not fully real, but um, I am going to keep praying, and mm. we do pray as a family. And I don't care if people are cynical. I want to always be hopeful until his dying breath.
0: Yeah. Well, last question. And uh, this one, you know, this is what I found when I was at Moody, for example, uh, because we were not part of the prosperity, Pentecostal, charismatic community. I found that if I wanted to, you know, write a commentary about um, Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or, you know, any number of uh, prosperity preachers, I-, I could do that commentary. Um, the one commentary then when I was at Moody, they got pulled was one that I had written about James McDonald because James, as I was told by a senior VP, is one of our ministry friends. So I I couldn't say that. But what's going Hmm. on in the evangelical community that is not supposedly prosperity gospel? If people had any idea the amount of money— now, it may not be quite on the level that we're talking about with your uncle— but we have megachurch pastors that are rolling in money. We have yeah. radio preachers that we think, you know, we look up to. I encourage people, I, I say this all the time, go and see their 990. We have pastors who are making full-time salaries that are very good salaries, and then they're getting several hundred thousand for their, their radio ministry, which what do they do for their radio ministry? There's one yeah. preacher who has actually claimed 95.5 hours that he works per week, if you add up all of his nonprofits, and he takes money yeah. from all of them. And, you know, some of these, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail because it's what I'll be publishing on actually in the future, and I'm working on some of these stories. But, but these are people that have spoken out against the prosperity gospel, and yet yeah. they're living like this. And the hypocrisy, to me, is almost worse because they pretend that they're against the prosperity gospel, and yet they're living Large again, this is not money that they've earned. Sometimes it is, you know, they wrote books and did whatever, fine. But this is donations that are given to their ministries, and they're using a lot of this money for themselves. So, yeah. would you speak to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the first thing I would do is I would put, I would make two clear categories or two clear boxes. Box mm-hmm. number one is the prosperity gospel that is the preaching or the teaching that believing in Jesus is going to guarantee health wealth and happiness so there's that then i would do over here i would put box number 2 and i would i call that the issue of stewardship hmm. in sound doctrine circles and so i would say this those those men and women are not necessarily preaching like you said they're they're against the prosperity gospel they're not preaching prosperity gospel that Jesus guarantees health wealth and happiness cuz they they support and love lots of pastors who don't have lots of money they never tell them hey man just believe and you'll be rich too or you'll have a radio ministry too so th- to be fair there's that however what you're what you're highlighting is you know essentially what what do you do with pastors who preach against the prosperity gospel okay that's great it's it's a false gospel but then live like very rich people, very wealthy people. And that here's the here's what why I box that into stewardship. Jesus said it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I think there's something important there to remember.
0: Hmm.
1: If for for wealthy ministers even in conservative circles, the more you accumulate wealth, the the harder it is. I think for your soul, as you wrestle through the things of this world. Now, as you do more investigative journalism on this, I don't know how much everyone's giving. Maybe that's on paper. Maybe they give it back. I don't know what they do with it. But in the end, I do think there's a stewardship issue for everyone. We all have to steward things appropriately. And so, yeah, is there is there a too much money? I just was talking privately with a brother Um, recently, who's who's in the middle of sort of a prosperity gospel transition? Hmm. He is the pastor of a megachurch. He lives very well, and and he said, "Man, are you telling me like I can't have anything? I gotta be broke?" I said, "No, like show me in the Bible where Paul said a, a preacher has to be broke. He doesn't. The labor is worthy of his wages. There's elders who rule well, worthy of double honor. You have you have passages about caring for those who labor among us. There's nothing wrong with highly esteeming them. The question is." Do you have to be a millionaire? Do you have to be, and then also, are you working for it? For example, for him, I said, you make a great salary from your church. He said, yes. I said, you work hard at the church. He said, yes. I said, are you living like a rock star? He said, no, we're just, we have a nice house. We pay the mortgage. I'm serving. It's just kind of like a normal life. I said, all right, you got money from books. He said, yeah. And so I go, okay, that right there is what you have to steward. But I do think the challenge becomes how many Nonprofits, or how many organizations are we the head of? and then what does the law say mm-hmm. and then how do you how do you faithfully earn that income? and so again, there's nothing wrong with a church caring for its pastor. that's great. The lights are on. he has a great car that runs, and if the church can afford it, the elders approve it. the people know about it, and he's living not like again like a rock star, but he's living mm-hmm. and his wife, is like, thank you. The church is so kind, and he's laboring, giving back to the church. It's great. But in the end, that's a clean system. And then a guy writes books and gets money for for writing a book. Okay, great. I think from there, there is a bit of an interesting challenge in the conservative world to still be above reproach and to still steward things appropriately. That would be something that I would be uncomfortable with. I I know my wife and I talk often about these things because these are realities for us. Um, You know, you get offered a lot of weird stuff and like certain things. And Instagram's big on that now. I get reached out to every month by people who want me to wear their clothing and their glasses. Hmm. And if I, they'll give it to me for free if I wear their stuff. So just imagine me, Julie, like, you know, (laughs) I'm taking a selfie on Instagram and I'm rocking this $400 pair of glasses, which I got for free. And I'm like, Hey, thanks. Thanks. So-and-so. Uh shout out to so and so. type in Costi 2020 for 20% off this week <laughs> on these glasses. So so I'm like, come on, Julie, you're saving yeah. money on the glasses. I'm wearing the glasses for free. What's the big And we're like, okay, well, what are you, Costi? What are you? Are mm. you a a a money man? Are you a hype man? Or are you a pastor? Mm. So how are you making your money? What are you mm. doing with your money? I think these are all the questions of stewardship that come up. I may not be preaching a false gospel and making money off of false gospel, but how do I live? And so I had a mentor tell me once, when it comes to money in ministry, be very careful how you live it, drive it, and wear it.
0: And mm. I was like, man,
1: that's good. Mm. And so, again, not saying you can't wear a nice outfit to church or, or go get a good suit. I'm, that's not what that means. Mm. But it, it just means to be always asking those questions do I need, even if I could afford a, a $1.5 million home, do is that what God wants me to do with my, do I need a one, one and a half million dollar home? Could I live in a a $300,000 home? Or do you live in a housing market where, you know, like Arizona out here, a $300,000 home, you're it's like a mansion in California, that's an 800 square foot studio. Right. There's different housing markets. So to say all that, it's a stewardship issue we need to use wisdom, we need to have a lot of accountability. And then in the end, I really don't, just personally, this is Mm -hmm. conviction, not command. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that we need to cash in on every single opportunity we could for ourselves. And that is, I think, the great challenge. If somebody comes and it's big money for you personally, Mm. and it helps a lot of people, what do you do? And I, I think some of my mentors have told me your best bet is to just divert those funds to the church. Don't even take them, Hmm. just give it, give the money to the church and take your salary and live your life and love your wife and be Hmm. faithful and write your books, but don't be the guy who's always in the next thing to make the money for yourself. Now you've got, you just, it can become really challenging to stay above reproach. And that's been advice that's been given to me by guys who have been there for 30 40 years and mm-hmm. have done it right. Mm-hmm. So, and again, a long answer, but I think that's a deep well, and you know it. I mean, that <laughs> it's huge.
0: It's, it's a huge well. And one principle I would add to the ones that you've said, which have been excellent, is, are you transparent about it? Yes. Because it's shocking to me, and, and I'll step on some toes here, but you mentioned John MacArthur, grace to you, his radio ministry in 2015, stopped, came under the church, so it stopped filing 990, so we don't know how much money John MacArthur gets right now for that ministry, grace to you. Got it. Step on another toe. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries did the same thing. Step on another toe. Focus on the family. Did the same thing. There's all these parachurch ministries who now are declaring themselves churches, so you can't find out, because when you file a 990, you have to know how much all of the top paid officers in that organization make they're not doing it anymore. So you don't know. And I have to say, for our, I started taking donations a little over a year ago. I just published our complete financials. You can look item by item, and you can see exactly how much money I was paid from what was given. And to me, that's the commitment that every ministry should have to the donor, that the donor should see exactly what you make and let the donor decide let the donor decide if that's okay. And I tell you what, when you're publishing, when I know that every dollar I'm giving, I'm going to have to report, that's a good bit of accountability for me.
1: You know. <laughs> I believe that. I have a question. I have a yeah. question for you just because sure. we're on. And I mean, people, yeah. can, people are listening now. How do you feel about pastors or, or if like when guys are authors or mm-hmm. like, for example, the last book we did, um, we put the financial statement in the front of it. But let's say the next book I write, I I don't give all the royalties away. I'm like, no, I wrote a book and it took me four Mm -hmm. months and I've got four kids and I stayed up late and I want to take the royalties for that. How do you feel about like when books do well and pastors make money off of writing books, do you expect that the elders in that church and them, they should be giving and stewarding and being faithful or like, am I, how do you view people like, what if you take the money and you put it away for your kid's college one day or Mm -hmm. pastors living and stewarding financially, and, and doing what, quote, well, in the first world? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you quantify all of that, even with transparency?
0: Hmm. Two things. One, is it your money? So in other words, are they just rehashing your sermons that you were already paid to give? Because if you were already paid to give those sermons, then I don't understand how you can kind of double dip. The church paid you for that. And so, like, for example, when I did my radio show— Moody gave me a full-time salary. Well, actually, for the last half, it wasn't a full-time salary, it's a part-time salary, but they were paying me for my time, so I didn't own my material. Yet pastors, it's almost standard right now in the industry where pastors, even if they're just publishing what they've done sermons for, yep. they can take that money, right? It's They own that intellectual property. I don't understand that. If you were paid for it, the church should own that, and they should get that money. Got so it. is it your money to me is the first question. The second question is I think really, do you want your reward here or do you want it in heaven? So you're free with that money to do what you want. And and I'm not into a poverty gospel either. I mean, God has blessed us and it's okay to use that money. But I think you really have to think about that. God's given you that money. And that's where I think it comes back to exactly what you said. It's stewardship. How does God want you to steward that money? Does he want you to spend it on yourself? If you spend it on your kids' college, yeah, all of us want to send our kids to college. Nothing wrong with that. But again, it's stewardship, and it's understanding this money is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. He should get to direct it where he wants to.
1: I'm, I'm thankful for that. It's fun to pick your brain. I'll probably call you sometime <laughs> off the air and pick your brain more about things.
0: Wow. You're the, you're the first guest I've had that's, that's asked me about specifically about things. So that was kind of fun. Thank you. Well,
1: I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated by the subject because mm-hmm. in the end it's, you know, I, I think everybody to some degree wants to do the right thing or, or even for me personally, I can't speak for everyone, but it's fun to learn and mm-hmm. hear the perspective of other people. And then even in making those decisions, you can think through the the contingencies and think through, you know, what to do with money and how to divert money and how to honor the Lord and think through those things. So it's just, it's it's fun. I'm kind of a, because I came out of the prosperity gospel, I end up being a, a money nerd, like on the topic of stewardship. <laughs> yeah. I'm always thinking through, you know, Bible passage. And even um, we, you know, we've talked about this with people at our church and we talk about this at our church often is, you know, giving is like, I've talked with leaders and pastors who, you know, the people in the church, they don't want to give it all. They're like, "Ah, I don't trust pastors or just a bunch of that. And you're thinking, well, so stewardship on all sides, prosperity gospel and poverty gospel needs so much shepherding and Mm -hmm. so much wisdom. So to get to pick your brain and just hear your thoughts is fun for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, this has been fun for me. So Kosti, thank you so much. I've really, really appreciated this.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Julie.
0: And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce, and if you'd like to find me online, just go to Julie Reus, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Also, please subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about this podcast by leaving a review. And then, if you would, share what you think of the podcast on social media. Really, really would appreciate that. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you have a great day and God bless.